Welcome to Safe Dividend Investing, podcast number 80 on September 7th of 2022. In addition to answering the usual five questions from investors, I will begin reading from chapter 11 of my investment book, Income and Wealth from Self-Directed Investing. This means skipping chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10, which really require you sitting in front of a computer terminal following my guidelines on how to choose and buy the stocks for your portfolio. Chapter 11's title is On Being Frugal. More than one reader of this book has suggested this chapter should be taught to teenagers. Question number one. What questions would you ask a financial advisor before entrusting him to invest your life savings? Financial advisors work very hard at creating the illusion that they are stock market geniuses. They use strange jargon and a knowledge of obscure investment techniques to intimidate any amateur who would dare question what they think is their superior investment knowledge. I tell you this to prepare you for the convoluted answers you should expect from the typical investment advisor. I have avoided investment advisors for the last 18 years after one I entrusted my life savings to lost almost half of my savings in four years. Years later, I helped an 80-year-old widow who experienced a similar-sized loss. Things had not changed. Her investment advisors were as intent as mine were in enriching themselves from her investments. She pushed me to write a book about her experience with the advisors to warn others. I wrote that book and have since written several other books to help investors. To establish the credibility of an investment advisor, the first question I would ask is, if I gave you $1 million, how would you invest it? Do not be surprised if the response is that they would be putting it into several diversified mutual funds. Selling you mutual funds requires almost no effort and gives the advisor a good income. My next question would be, Why, in mutual funds, the advisor might be a bit stunned by your ignorance of mutual funds. The advisor will drone on about the safety of spreading your money over hundreds of stocks and that it would give you a steady 4% return on your money, as if such a mediocre return were an outstanding return. I would then ask what special mutual fund he would invest the money in. This response would then raise more questions. Why these mutual funds instead of the hundreds of others that are available? The advisor is probably pushing the in-house mutual fund of his employer or funds they have special deals with. Unfortunately, in buying a mutual fund, the fee for managing the fund is taken off the top and does not appear in your monthly statement. Thus, the next question. What is the management fee for your chosen funds compared to other funds? Can you supply a list of the stocks that the fund is invested in? What percent of the fund is in each stock? 
and how long have these stocks been held in the fund? The advisor typically will only be aware of 10 marquee stocks that are put in the fund to make it appear credible, but have very little knowledge of the hundreds of mediocre stocks in the fund. Are you invested in these funds? If so, ask to see the monthly investment statements for the last two years to give you an idea of what to expect in costs and results. The odds are that the advisor is not invested in these funds, but is more likely to be invested in a low-cost ETF or index fund. It will be interesting to see how the question is handled. By the time the advisor may be spluttering and may be anxious to get rid of you. If the advisor is still hanging in there for the sale, now ask a question about cost. They hate giving a straightforward answer about cost. What percentage of my portfolio will you be taking each year to compensate you for your service in managing my money, and what are they, all the other additional charges I will be paying? This will depend upon how much you are investing. Keep in mind the investment advisor is unlikely to spend 10 hours of his time in a year on your investments. If the amount asked translates into $1,000 or more an hour, ask how it is justified. If the answer is you will gain far more from management of your money than it will cost you, then ask how much can it be guaranteed in writing. It can't. The additional transaction charges can easily add up to thousands of dollars in a year if the advisor is allowed to buy and sell dozens of times in a month to increase their income. The advisor may take a different route and suggest putting your money in bonds and preferred shares. These investments have zero potential for capital gain. Ask what the charge would be if the purchase one million dollars of these investments and how much would the charge be when you sold them. This could be several percentage points each time. If the advisor promotes the idea of investing your money in a portfolio of individual stocks, ask if this is something the advisor has done. If it is, then ask to see two years of his monthly statements to give you an idea of what it was invested in and how the portfolio grew and what dividend income it may have thrown off. You also want to see how often the stocks are being bought and sold because every buy and sell is going to trigger a charge. And if they are foreign stocks, there's going to be foreign exchange conversion charges. Analyzing the advisor's stocks carefully would give you a good idea of what to expect. You might be impressed, which is great, but I suspect that few investment advisors invest this way. It requires too much effort on their part. Never lose sight of the reality that this investment advisor is employed by a financial institution. An advisor's job is to separate you from as much of your money as possible. Most of that money is probably going to the financial institution. You are not the employer. You are the prey. Becoming an informed, self-directed investor is easier than you think, safer, and much less expensive than losing control of your money to an investment advisor. Question number two. 
Why would anybody invest in stocks when the market is down like it is now? Now is a great time to invest in some carefully chosen, financially strong stocks paying high dividends. Such stocks pay their regular dividends even when share prices may drop by 50%. This can be easily proven by looking at share prices and dividend payments going back for decades. After every dip, these strong stocks rise to new record levels. Time is your friend. Patience is rewarded. Many strong stocks paying high dividends are now available at bargain prices. You can get more shares for your money now than you could a year ago. In a sense, if you buy such stocks and they double or triple in value in the next few years, it becomes almost irrelevant because as their share price increases, many increase their dividend payments. What is the point of selling them if you have adapted to living off your reliable, growing dividend income? The share price just becomes a number in the background. In an emergency, you might sell some shares of such stocks, but otherwise your portfolio just becomes a safe, growing asset that maintains your lifestyle. You have no need to speculate when you own such stocks. It takes much of the stress out of investing. Question number three. Do you need an investment plan to profit on the stock market? Probably before you have an actual plan, you need an objective. Why are you investing? The obvious answer is to make a profit from the money you invest. This can be more easily said than done. How are you going to invest to make money? If you're investing in the stock market, then it's going to involve stocks. You can gamble, or as investors like to call it, speculate, on buying a stock at one price and selling it at a higher price. How long do you plan on waiting for the stock you bought to increase in price? Minutes? Hours? Days? Weeks? Months? Years? What if it has not risen and you need the money you invested to live on? Are you prepared to sell the stock at a loss? The other option is to invest in stocks that pay regular dividends. Dividends are paid from profits. Profits are not directly related to a stock price. You can be paid a dividend and yet see the value of the stock you bought decrease by 50%. How long are you willing to wait for your share price to achieve a price higher than what you paid for the stock? You can increase your chances of making money by investing equally in 20 strong stocks that pay high dividends. With such a portfolio, you have no more than 5% of your wealth invested in any one stock. This provides you with the safety of diversity. Do you know how to identify strong stocks? Do you know how to find them? This could be called an investment plan. You are warned there are many dangers in investing that you should be aware of before you start working your plan. Question number four. What is an example of lazy investing? 
You invest equally in 20 financially strong stocks whose share prices and dividend payments have increased steadily for the last 20 years. You then forget about the stocks and live off the dividends. The share prices will continue to rise and the dividend payments will rise along with them to keep your income ahead of inflation. Even a market crashes when all stock values drop by as much as 50%, the regular dividends get paid because dividends are paid from profits which are not directly tied into share price gyrations. Such stocks after the crash again rise to new record highs. This can easily be proven by looking at the share price and dividend payouts of such companies going back for decades. Perhaps out of boredom, you may occasionally score the stocks to confirm their strength, but otherwise you can forget about them. One or two may deviate from their pattern of behavior from time to time, but it is doubtful their impact on your portfolio would even be noticed. If you're generating more cash than you need from your dividends, you can invest it back into the 20 stocks. This would create a compounding effect that would cause the portfolio to double in shorter and shorter time periods. This is how I have invested for 20 years. Question number five. How does a stock market determine a company's value? What is a company's value? Credit granters look at value as being a company's net worth, that is, assets minus liabilities. Investors look at the stock price of all companies as being either overvalued or undervalued. Pessimists think it is overvalued. Optimists think it is undervalued. To buy a share in a company in a stock market, you must find a pessimist who owns that share who thinks it is overvalued and is willing to buy it from you at the price you offer. Optimists can quickly turn into pessimists once they have completed their purchase of the stock. Supposedly, if you multiplied all the shares ever issued on the company by the current share price, you would have one definition of a company's value. However, with hours, that value can increase or decrease by 10% or more. Value is fleeting. Probably the best definition of value is that it is whatever someone is willing to pay for anything at any given time. Thus, labeling a stock as overvalued or undervalued is just a convenient label and almost a relevant value judgment. Now, reading from Chapter 11 of my book, Income and Wealth from Self-Directed Investing. This chapter is entitled, on being frugal. One definition of frugal is simple, plain, costing little. The hard part with being frugal is that you must first accept you can't have your cake and eat it too. If you're going broke, trying to look rich, then you need to accept the reality that your whole attitude towards money 
must change. Your objective is to obtain financial independence. You want a passive income from your investments that allows you to live well with no need for employment. This requires you to sacrifice now for future rewards. You need to accumulate enough cash to invest in a dividend-paying stocks which have the potential for capital gains. For many, it first requires paying off all debts with the intolerably high interest rates. If married, this includes your spouse's debts and your own. For a shared goal of financial independence, you both need to buy into frugality now, not next week, next month, or next year. Since married couples are usually responsible for one another's debts, financial compatibility is important. You're going to be making large financial decisions together and most likely be sharing a bank account. A survey conducted by SlickDeals.net of 2,000 people found that 90% of the respondents viewed frugality as an appealing trait to have in a prospective spouse. That same survey also found that 53% of the respondents would avoid a relationship with someone who was in debt. 60% have been in a relationship with partners who were reckless with money. They now avoided relationships with the financially irresponsible. Although it does not sound very romantic, a dating service called creditscoredating.com exists. They provide a credit score on those using their service. Another website, marriage.com, states that while infidelity is the number one reason for divorce, the number two reason is money. It has been my experience from designing credit risk scoring systems based on millions of records that 80% of any population behaves responsibly in managing their affairs. It is the remaining 20% that cause varying degrees of grief. A quarter of this 20% are very toxic. Someone who regularly reaches the limit on their credit card is broadcasting their financial irresponsibility. Often, when they cannot charge more in their credit card, they attempt to seek an additional card from another financial institution. I say attempt because each month, financial institutions transmit their customers' credit card experiences to credit reporting agencies. This creates a risk pool that warns them of potential problem accounts. These institutions also frequently match credit scores against all their customers. Well, they like good customers who carry high credit balances. The interest these cardholders are paying is very profitable. They don't like bad debt losses. Maxed out in your credit card? Eliminating that debt takes priority over any investing objectives. The stock market is not a casino or a lottery. Do not expect the stock market to reward you with a lump sum to pay off your credit card debt. There is no point 
in investing money to earn a 6% dividend when you are paying 20% interest per year on a credit card debt that is compounding monthly. The convenience of credit cards blinds many borrowers to considering the use of less expensive borrowing options, like a line of credit or a bank loan. These two options charge a quarter of the interest you would be paying in credit card interest. A credit card is a convenient buying tool. A frugal investor pays off the credit card balance every month before the card's due date to avoid paying interest charges. This requires organization and discipline. It also requires accepting the difference between needs and wants. You want your money invested and earning income, not paying outrageous bank interest. Until you are free of high interest obligations, you must question every dollar spent. The people I know who have worked hard to accumulate millions of dollars in assets don't drive overly expensive show cars, wear expensive designer clothes, live in 10,000 square foot mansions, nor live an overly extravagant lifestyle. Before they spend a dollar, they think about the realizable cost-benefit of that dollar. These are not impulsive people. They have a goal and they have a plan. In the legendary 1996 book, The Millionaire Next Door, by authors Professor Thomas J. Stanley, Ph.D., and William D. Dank, Ph.D., publisher Longstreet Press, Inc., Marietta, Georgia, USA. The authors best describe how 50 years ago they began studying the wealthy. They started their research in what they thought was the most logical place, the well-to-do areas across the USA. They soon discovered that people in the impressive, upscale homes who drove expensive cars rarely had wealth. Many of those with true wealth did not live in upscale areas. The book is well worth reading. It gives interesting insights into the behavior and problems of the wealthy. About 20% of the population work hard at making you believe they are wealthy. They flaunt their expensive clothes, their status cars, and their impressive addresses. When I was president of a small collection agency, it opened my eyes to the illusion of wealth. We collected the long past due accounts for the most expensive clothing store in the city. Their customers were professional people, well-educated, doctors, dentists, lawyers, engineers, and executives. While they had high incomes, they were spending more than they earned and were drowning in debt. The cost of creating this illusion of wealth removes any chance of them ever achieving real wealth. They will never achieve the financial independence that would allow them to stop working and still maintain their lifestyle. Perhaps you cannot blame them. Our society gears us to keep us working for the rest of our lives. 
No one directs students towards achieving financial independence as quickly as possible. Not all debt is bad. People can use credit wisely to increase their wealth. Taking a 2.5% mortgage on an investment property versus liquidating stocks that are paying a 7% dividend to buy the property makes sense. This is especially true when property prices are growing annually at 4% or more. It is amazing how easy it is to obtain a mortgage at the best rate from a bank when your stock portfolio is many times greater the amount you wish to borrow. What expenses would I cut if I were one of those high-income, low-wealth individuals maxed out on my credit card? Next week, September 14th, I will go into these other expenses such as automobile expense, accommodation expense, and so on. Thanks for listening. If you wish more information on investing and stock scoring, please visit my website, www.saferbetterdividendinvesting.com.